Hello and welcome back to Hayden's Entertainment Hour. Today we are going to be talking about a much anticipated movie on this podcast. Now I for a long time have been craving an A24 film back in theaters. I have not seen an A24 film in theaters since Uncut Gems in 2019. There were no A24 films that came out during the pandemic in theaters that I went to see and most of the ones that I ended up watching that were newer came out on streaming services or I had to end up buying. But this particular A24 film I had been looking forward to for quite some time. The Green Knight, directed by David Lowry. Now, I like David Lowry as a director already. I really like The Old Man and the Gun, and I think it's a very good send-off to to Robert Redford. I also like A Ghost Story, even though most people say that it's a very boring and pretentious film, but I honestly think it's one of his better works. And here we have The Green Knight, which is an adaptation of an old piece of English folklore that I very much was looking forward to from the first trailer because I knew three things going into it. It was going to be trippy and probably something general audiences wouldn't like. It wasn't going to be a huge action-packed film like some people thought it was going to be. And three, I thought it would put Dave Patel on the map finally, even though he's already been on the map with smaller works. So, with The Green Knight, I sat here, I waited, the pandemic got a little bit better, they put it out in theaters, I went and saw it, and was phenomenally blown away by this movie. And there's a lot to unpack here today, there's a lot of Reach thematic stuff that we're going to go over, and I have my co-host today that will hopefully be here to help me unpack most of this thematic stuff with the movie. Dalton from Westmore Films, if you've watched his channel, I recently did a collab video with him on Whiplash, please go check it out, and the rest of Dalton's content. Dalton, welcome back to the podcast. You excited to talk about this movie today? Uh, thanks for having me back, as always. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this movie. Uh, just like you, I was looking forward to this film coming out. Like, I had my doubts about it when I first saw the trailers. You know, that kind of, like, uh, nerd gripe about, oh, is this going to be accurate to the source material? But then I think, like, as I started... Like, after I watched The Lighthouse, I believe, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to enjoy this more as an A24 film. And so I saw the film last week, um, and I was kind of blown away by the film. But we'll get more into that as the review goes on. Yes, yeah, so... Uh, This film, if I wanted to basically give you a plot synopsis, is it's about a young man named Gawain that is played by Dave Patel, uh, and he is trying to figure out what honor means and how he himself can become an honorable man. He is visited one Christmas Christmas day when he is at King Arthur's round table by the Green Knight, who asks somebody to play a game with him. Of course, Gawain accepts this challenge and ends up beheading the Green Knight, but has to return the Green Knight's favor one year hence on Christmas Day again. So Gawain sets out on this journey where he goes through a lot of different twists and turns to eventually reach the throne and accept the Green Knight's fate bestowed upon him. So, the Green Knight, um... I guess to start off with this, I gotta say, this is probably one of the most gorgeous looking movies I've seen this year. Probably will end up being the best looking movie I've seen this year. Just simply because the cinematography and color display in this movie is so fun to look at. Like, from literally the opening scene where it is just the stable with all of, like, the goats and ducks and stuff like that, and you see fires growing in the background, you know... This movie is going to look gorgeous. The round table looks gorgeous. Gawain's color of skin of, of green and yellow looks really gorgeous. I mean, there is a lot of beauty in the cinematography in this movie. And I think some of it was probably filmed on 4K cameras, which would make a lot more sense considering that makes most things look beautiful in a movie. But the cinematography in this 
blew me away. I don't know if you feel the same way about it. Oh, I would absolutely agree. I think, uh, I think from the trailers, what I remember of them when I first saw them, like it was a lot more dour because like a lot of what we saw was like um, a couple random clips that like seen from the very start of the film of like the false reality where Gawain becomes king and like he lights he just catches fire yeah um so like i was i wasn't really expecting this movie to be that colorful but i think like there are like a lot of colors like popped in this movie there were a lot of really gorgeous sequences in the film where like the colors were like really beautiful like uh like how you said uh gawain's color scheme stands out really well and it helps uh make him be a really familiar character to the audience i think probably like my favorite sequence for the film just because of how it looks is when he finally reaches the green chapel because of like the time of day that he goes and like how the sun uh how the sunset is contrasted with the environment yeah it looks really beautiful that it does but yeah so the cinematography is beautiful in this uh the score was very good too i will admit this might be a score that i just end up buying and listening to as background music because my goodness they had like even if it was like the most subtle little like violin things in it or if it was just people doing like a choir kind of thing in it it's just so beautiful to listen to and it's even got like a Christmassy feel to it which I kind of wonder if at one point this movie was supposed to be kind of like that Christmassy spot, but then the pandemic hit. But I guess we'll never really know because of what happened last year. But this movie has a really gorgeous soundtrack to it. And I got to admit, David Lowry is one of those guys that's very good at putting details into a lot of things in his movies. So from the cinematography to the music, this movie is pretty much a 10 out of 10 in those departments. Did you like the music in it too? I think the soundtrack did a really good job selling it like this was something that actually happened mm-hmm. so like you know, king arthur it's one of those things where like you know people kind of think that it didn't happen but there might be some historical basis to it and yeah so uh the film the film soundtrack while i there's not really too many standout pieces that i remember like the soundtrack is very medieval it helps root the film in the time period that it would have theoretically taken place in yeah i agree with that um so now we'll finally dip into the movie a little bit here so one thing i gotta say about the green knight is as it starts off you're introduced to gawain now gawain is really well played by Dave Patel. Like I said, this is probably a standout performance, like career best, I would say. And from the introduction, we see Gawain is not exactly the noble, honorable kid that you thought he was going to be. Like, he wakes up in a brothel, and he doesn't go to church, he's late getting all of his clothes on, he goes to Arthur in the round table, and he sits there and drinks. And when King Arthur draws him over and is talking to him about how, oh, do you have a story to tell me or a song to sing or something like that? He's like, well, I have none to tell. He's had no adventures, nowhere to go. And of course the queen is trying to tell him, well, don't sit by these idols idly. Be somebody that is great, be an honorable man someday. But Gawain doesn't truly know what honor means, which is something that comes crashing into his life when the Green Knight enters the door. When the Green Knight comes in and nobody wants to best him in his game, Gawain is quick to jump, thinking this opportunity will bring him honor, fame, fortune, which it does bring him fame a little bit, but not the type of fame I think he was expecting. But as Gawain accepts this duel from the Green Knight, the rest of the movie is interesting because Gawain's character going forward 
is very selfish and looks out for himself mostly in the film. And I know that's going to be a turnoff for a lot of people that this character is very selfish and he's only thinking of himself the entire film. But ultimately, that's kind of the point of Gawain as a character is we want to see this growth from him being this spoiled, selfish, pompous kid that basically only wants to look out for himself and wants to do one good deed to garner all this fame. But at the end of the day, we want to see him gain that honor. We want to see him become the honorable man that we all expect. And I think there's a lot of greatness in a character like Gawain that we can relate to, too, because as this movie goes on, he basically fails the five virtues of a knight, which is generosity, friendship, piety, chastity, and courage. And each one of those plays out in the movie, which we'll kind of dig into a little bit as this goes on. But I kind of like that Gawain's character from the start and a majority of the movie is very frustrating because it really builds into that first ending that we get with it that I think is really thematically well done. But what are your thoughts on Gawain as a character? So the interesting thing about Gawain to me is like how you said how pretty much like the whole movie is about his shortcomings as a knight. So mm-hmm. uh, I think I think you've heard this in CVH when I have talked about this movie, but I was planning on reading like the Tolkien version of the story before seeing it in theaters, but I never got the time to do that before I ended up seeing it. Yeah. So like um, just like having like the Wikipedia page for like the original story open right now it's just interesting like looking through this and contrasting what we ended up getting and it was it's interesting because i guess we'll get more into this when uh we talk about um the story itself but it's interesting to see the comparison between the version of gawain that's in the original the original story and the version of gawain that um the film presents because like what you said uh pretty much um yeah he's a really shallow character he fails at every opportunity that is given to him to prove himself because he thinks that going on the quest itself will just magically transform him into a knight instead of like him having to take the action upon himself to become a better person yeah and i think one thing that's interesting is that when they present arthur at first in the movie to talk to gwen arthur is almost seen as almost like a godlike figure like if you notice like the little crown that he wears not only is like symbolic that he's king but it's almost like basically saint-like because it's like a little halo that goes around it's like oh they look at king arthur as not just a king but as almost a holy figure in this land and arthur even tries to give good advice to him at the beginning where he's basically telling him like hey I know that you come from a background that many may not like see as somebody fit to rule this crown, but I believe in greatness for you and one day you will lead this kingdom, which is why I feel like Gawain has a lot of pressure on his shoulders and why he's so selfish to get to the knight, do this one thing, and then become famous like you said, whereas he's not learning the true self-worth and honorability as it goes on like Arthur would want him to. I mean, literally, after the Green Knight enters the chapel, the beheading happens and he leaves. Gawain does not become more honorable by this. He doesn't shape up and become a better person. He goes back to drinking in brothels and sleeping with his girlfriend. And he just lets this fame go to his head. So that way people are like, oh, look, it's the famous Green Knight Slayer. Let's pay for his meal or something like that. And literally Gawain is abusing this power to the point in which he's kind of dreading when he has to go out a year hence and actually confront the knight. Because literally King Arthur has to come down to his mother's house and be like, hey, dude, 
I want greatness for you. I don't see why you want to avoid something like this. And of course, this leads to Gawain being like, okay, I got to at least try to go after this guy. And if I can't, well, maybe people will still honor me for doing a great thing. And I feel like that's kind of one of the things about Arthur that I really like with this movie is how they not only make him out to be a great, wiseful person in the life of Gawain, but also a holy figure that everybody looks up to that is on this pedestal of greatness that Gawain can only wish he could accomplish someday like Arthur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to add on that, I think that uh, the way that Arthur was depicted in this movie was really unique because, like, in a lot of adaptations of, like, Arthurian uh, mythology and stuff like that, uh, he's usually, like, you know, they, people choose to adapt, like, you know, the Sword of the Stone type thing, like how Disney did back in the day. Yep. He's, like, you know, the starry-eyed chosen one. Or, like, a lot of the times, just, like, him being, like, a badass, like, with that, um... Is it Guy Ritchie, I think? The Legend of the Sword? Yep, Guy Ritchie did a King Arthur movie. Yeah. So, like, it was really interesting to see, like, Arthur being portrayed as, like, a Christ-like figure. Because, like, you know, he's wise and noble, but also he's a little quirky. Like, the one scene where he's, like, oh, where he wherever, uh, he goes to talk with Wayne, he's just like, oh, I... I have a bad tooth. I don't know if you do that. Yeah, yeah. And Gwen's just like, oh, okay. But yeah, um, because, like, King Arthur is, like, he wants uh, what's best for his, like, nephew or whatever his relationship to Gwen is. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be a nephew because his mom is yeah. technically related to King Arthur. Yeah. And, like, um, he gives credit to his knights for bringing peace to the land. And just to bring on build off of what you said about his crown too like i saw, noticed picked up on that like uh christian imagery with like having the halo be built into arthur's crown and how that like that can also be representative of the round table itself as well yeah but yeah arthur was really cool in this movie i like what they did with him I do too. Um, So like I said, as this journey starts off for Gawain and he's not so sure about if he is worthy enough to take on the night or he's kind of dreading going on this adventure, he saddles up, of course, his girlfriend gives him like this little token for him to remember her by. And we get this very, very subtle scene that I kind of love where she's talking to him before he goes off about how like, oh, I would really love to be your queen someday, rule by your side, hold your hand and stuff. But if you notice in the scene, Gawain never says anything like, yes, I would like that or anything, because Gawain knows one thing that she doesn't. Gawain is a noble person that comes born in a highborn kingdom. And highborn people in that time usually did not order or did not usually marry brothel girls like her, which is why I think at the ending, it's really well juxtaposed because we have the setup for this dreadful event that's going to happen at the end of the movie right here in the scene where Gawain doesn't acknowledge the fact that like, oh yes, you will be my queen someday and rule by my side because he knows deep down that him and her can never get married because of laws in their kingdom. Yeah. And it doesn't even feel like um, he cares for her that much outside of, yes, this is just my favorite prostitute. Pretty much, Especially when like him and Merlin go to steal uh, the child that they have together at the end of the movie. Yeah, especially in that, too. Um, But as this journey goes on, like I said, he is tested through the five virtues of the night, which, like I said, is generosity, friendship, piety, chastity, and courage. 
Now, the first one that he's presented with on his journey is generosity. So Gawain is going through this abandoned battlefield where this scavenger kid is like, my two brothers are basically gone or dead. And he's like kind of having like a mental breakdown a little bit. And he's just trying to have like a nice conversation with Gawain. And he's asking if he's a knight where he got the axe from, just trying to make small talk. Well, in this moment, the scavenger is like, oh, I know how you get to the green chapel. And he like points it out to him how to go over the river and stuff. But there's also a line in there where he does say this whole thing is the green chapel where we can unpack that later on as it goes on. But he points out how he can get to the green chapel going over this river. And a knight is supposed to usually reward somebody for this kind of information. But what does Gawain do, being the selfish prick he is? He just rides off past him and the kid literally has to beg, Hey dude, would you mind giving me something for giving you this information? And of course, Gawain just tosses him like a piece of silver, but of course, it weren't enough. And it ends up getting Gawain jumped in the forest because of how selfish he is and greedy to the point of where he did not do what a noble knight would, which is give somebody a, a, like even a little bit more than just a piece of silver for this very important piece of information he needs on his quest, which is why ultimately he fails the first virtue, which is generosity. Yeah. Uh, to build off of that, um, I think the interesting, like the thing I love about that scene is like, um, like it's where like the costume design things like the costume design really shine yeah like uh the scavenger kid i just love the way that he looks because like you know if gawain had like actually paid attention like you know he would have been able to tell the difference of this was actually like a scared little kid or like as it turns out a robber because like uh the kid has like a necklace of rings that he's stolen from dead people yeah like his boots don't fit him because he's stolen them too he's just like stolen an entire uh drip from dead people basically yeah so like medieval discount yeah (laughs) like if Gawain had been paying attention uh he might have been able to notice that there was something wrong but instead like him like being a bad person like ended up getting him jumped in the woods and he pretty much just he loses his horse like he loses the axe uh he gets his shield broken he has his armor stolen Mm -hmm. like like the film like almost goes into the direction the direction that he dies there just tied up yep but yeah uh, yeah it is a great moment in there too i will say where after he's tied up and they basically scavenge his stuff and ran off you do get that little like uh, 360 camera spin where you, it turns and it shows like his corpse and how he never got out of this, which some people have said can be your first interpretation. Gwen just straight up failed and died there, but that's kind of like, I wouldn't say the lamest one, but that would be kind of the most depressing if, if he died there and the journey didn't go on. I mean, it'd be a very short movie, granted, but um, it's kind of one of those interpretations where I'm like, I don't think that's true. I would like to believe he escapes where he ends up cutting the rope on his sword and ends up cutting himself as it goes along. But like you and I agree on, he basically fails what is one of the biggest virtues of a knight that you are supposed to have as it goes along. Yeah. I think, like, the only thing I would have to nitpick with that scene is, like, uh, like after he uh, gets after he gets freed, like, he just leaves all of his equipment there except for, like, his cape. Yes, like, yeah. He, like, he just runs around with, like, no protection at all for, like, a good section of that movie until he gets the axe back. 
I'm just like, dude, your sword is sitting right there. Like, I know they broke your shield and they made the film made a really big deal about him getting the shield and also about the shield getting broken. But like your sword, dude, come on. Yeah. Uh, so the next virtue, which I may have said courage, but I meant courtesy. Uh, courtesy is a big one in this movie, and a knight is, again, supposed to be courteous. So, like we said, after Gawain has jumped and he loses most of his stuff and only takes his precious blanky cape with him, basically, <laughs> Gawain goes off and he encounters this house. A knight is supposed to knock and usually ask about residence, if he can take up residence in this place, if there is a lady of the house or anything like that. Rather than doing the noble thing, Gawain literally sleeps in this lady's bed. And then he wakes up, and she comes and asks him for a favor, because her head has been cut off and thrown in a lake. And rather than doing the noble thing and just being like, I will retrieve it for you, Gawain selfishly is like, well, what are you going to give me for it? Because I don't really want to go down there. And you're never supposed to ask for something as a knight. You are supposed to do something nobly and out of honor to basically you will get rewarded for it over time but just you're supposed to do it out of the nobility inside of you but Gawain is selfish and he of course asks for an incentive which is something that you never do and I feel like there's also times in this movie where he also is not courteous again like for example uh, Joel Edgerton who you may know as young Uncle Owen to a lot of people out there in the Star Wars prequels did you catch that? Uh, I will noticed that like after i was looking at the cast when i got home I okay like, oh interesting. yeah um so joel edgerton uh and this is later on in the movie when he makes a deal with joel edgerton that joel edgerton will hunt for him basically provide food but anything he receives in the house he should give to him gawain breaks this again because a sash is given to gawain by the lady of the house but gawain is not courteous and gives this back to joel edgerton and this is another moment where it just kind of shows how uncourteous he is and selfish he is and just how he's really not thinking about these virtues as a knight. So I guess, do you want to talk about courtesy or anything you picked up with it in the movie? Yeah, I, th- I kind of think it's interesting how, like, the movie, like, incorporates this theme of, like, failed quests and, like, uh, this, like, death imagery. Because, like, um... Like, you know, you have the battlefield that he goes through. You have, like, this uh, innocent woman who just got murdered in her house in the middle of the woods. And Gawain has to help her ghost so that she can move on. Um, You have, like, I think... uh, Before before any of this happens, you have, like, you know... The thing at the cross... I forget what it's called. Like, the little cage at the crossroad with the corpse in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I always call it, like, the pirate hanging thing. Because yeah. Pir- Pirates of the Caribbean had a few of those. I was like, oh, I just call those the pirate traps, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I think it's interesting because, like, when you were listing off the five virtues, I thought you would only be listing off um, uh, the saint scene in the movie where he talks with the headless lady. And, no, but, no. But, yeah, I... I I think that's also good. Like, that's just something that is set up and then paid off later when he's at the nobleman's house. Yeah. Uh, So I guess the next virtue I want to kind of dip into is friendship. So Gawain befriends a fox in this movie. And this fox, it's not the best CGI, but it's an A24 CGI. And you got to kind of deal with what you got. These people work on small budgets. It's very hard for them to make everything look realistic, guys. And I think we have to kind of accept that, like, 
I knew it was CGI in the movie. I know it didn't look the most realistic, but it didn't take me out of the movie that much. I felt like I kind of knew what this movie was trying to do with something like The Fox, and it really worked out in its favor. So, like I said, Gawain befriends this fox, and a fox can be symbolized as Celtic magic or even a spirit from the afterlife. And basically, this little fox is helping Gawain out on his journey. So, there's a moment in the movie where Gawain eats basically these poisonous berries and trips out a little bit. And he goes to these giants that are walking across the mountains and stuff. And Gawain wants to ask one of them for a ride on their shoulder to basically get to the Green Chapel quicker. But of course, the fox howls at them and they all go their separate ways because the fox knows that if he takes this, he won't be honorable and noble, taking the journey on his own grit and wit. And of course, the fox tries to help him veer off the path a little bit so that way he doesn't go and die at the hands of the Green Knight. And even tries to tell him, like, look, if you just go back and don't say anything, I will keep it our little secret within these woods and stuff. But of course, Gawain is not friendly. He swings the axe at the fox and he's angry with him, saying he never asked for his help. And he ends up breaking off this friendship with this fox that ended up really trying to help him. You could even say Joel Edgerton wanted to be good friends with Gawain. But of course, as the movie goes on, Gawain is not friendly towards him. He's constantly kind of talking away from him or acting like, dude, I don't really want your help or anything like that. And it constantly shows that Gawain throughout this movie is just failing at being a friendly person. Even not giving a coin to the scavenger kid is not having friendliness in your heart or knowing that you need that friendliness like a knight does to connect with people on your journeys. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because um, from what I could see, like the... Uh, the fox um, like it, they took something from the original story where um, there was a fox present in the original story and they built upon it so mm-hmm. like from what I saw like when you first when uh, Gawain first meets the fox in the film you kind of just assume that um, you know it's a normal fox until like it starts uh, going on a buddy cop road trip with uh, Gawain for a little bit. Yep. And you know you have the scene with the giants where like the fox like protects him from them. Like yep. I thought I thought that um, the giants were trying to kill Gawain but some people have said that like they were going to hitch him or give him a ride but the fox was like no dude you can't take the easy way out. Yeah. And then later on in the film um, you know him and the fox reunite again like after he's in the noble person's house until they like uh break off again and then like to me it seemed like it found out that like uh the fox was like a spirit vessel for uh Gawain's mom mm-hmm. because like in this movie they've like changed a little bit of Arthurian lore so that uh Morgan Le Fay is uh Gawain's mother in this yep so like uh and yeah it's also implied that you know uh she started all of this by creating the green knight to bother arthur so essentially she's like she's kind of like she's also trying to give him an easy out by using the fox and just being like hey uh you accidentally got involved with me trying to mess with uh king arthur you don't have to do this and then Gawain's just like, Mom, leave me alone. I got to do this quest. Yeah, basically. Um, so the next virtue I want to move into is chastity. Oh, boy, this is a big one in the movie. So <laughs> um, 
Gawain gets the hots for Joel Edgerton's wife. First off, don't sleep with another person's uh, partner. Don't do anything like that. That's just like the biggest no-no on the planet. But of course, Gawain ends up wanting to have sex with the woman of the house. And she kind of, you know, leaves little signs for him and stuff like, oh, I think you're really cute and stuff like that. But Gawain as a knight is supposed to reject this. Be noble, be like, no, I cannot. You are betrothed to another person. I cannot allow you to, I cannot allow you or me to have sexual intercourse, basically. But Gawain gives in to her and, of course, does the dirty deed. And it feels like in this moment, uh, even if it is disgusting to most people, that Gawain has to grip his cum sash now. In this moment, Gawain is humiliated because she tells him after, of course, he has climaxed that he is no knight because a knight would never try to sleep with somebody else's partner. And of course, it leaves Gawain humiliated. And even Joel Edgerton at one point in the movie tries to bring himself onto Gawain a little bit and kisses him. But... Gawain is like, no, I can't do this. I don't want our friendship. I don't feel like we're more than this. And he moves on. But it feels like this lesson is learned too late. And it feels like in that moment where he rejects Joel Edgerton, it feels like he didn't learn his lesson quick enough or that he was just doing it simply due to the fact that he was so embarrassed from sleeping with the lady of the house that he ended up just feeling so rejected and so like beaten down by this entire quest to where he feels like he just didn't care anymore as it was going on and just wanted to be done with it. I also have to say one thing I picked up on in this house that was really cool is that when they do like this little there's a there's a term for the painting they do with the light but when this painting is first created you notice that it's like all youthful and it looks great and it's not dark and decrepit but at the end of the movie it's getting more decrepit and aged and you can't see part of his face and it just kind of is a little bit of symbolism for the type of person that he will become in the first ending of the movie and another thing I wanted to point out too is there is an old woman that they never really mention or speak about in the house that has a blindfold on. But the only other character we see in the movie with a blindfold on is Gawain's mother. And many people I feel like can easily point this out that, oh, it's Gawain's mother in the old lady basically watching over him. And I guess the grossest part is that his mom watched him have sex because she's standing right there in the room when he goes to leave. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he was just looking at her like, Mom, stop interrupting me during this moment. And he runs out of the room. <laughs> but if you want to talk about chastity. Yeah. I don't know, Bacon. Can it really be an A24 movie if someone, if there isn't semen in it? I know. I know. We had that in the lighthouse. And there's probably more I can't think of off the top of my head. Are you but... sure that Adam Sandler like didn't do something in uncut jams i mean he does say holy shit i'm gonna come we never <laughs> i would assume that he did so he probably yeah. does at the ending when he wins his big bet but yeah um on the theme of chastity yeah like what you said um it's interesting because like uh how you said about like because uh Gawain struggles with chastity is kind of like set up early in the film because you know the only like the closest thing he has to a friend is the prostitute that he hangs out with yep so you know he probably goes there a lot he wastes his family money on it on her it's all that good stuff so like uh he's pretty much like destined to fail by the time he goes to this nobleman's house in the middle of nowhere Yep. And just to build off of, you know, the house doing interesting things, I think a really cool thing is that uh, the house has completely different architecture when compared to Camelot and the Green Chapel at the very end of the film. Because mm -hmm. all of the places in this film feel really distinct. Like, um, 
Camelot in the movie feels like it's like kind of walked out of like one of these dark age stories like when Gawain is riding away from it before the scene before we have the scene with him meeting the scavenger you know it kind of looks a little like Minas Tirith you know Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a grounded fantasy type thing and then you have the um like nobleman's house which kind of has this like majestic feeling it reminded me of like the magician's house from voyage of the dawn treader because like as a more like i want to say victorian style of architecture but that's probably not right but yeah like uh Gawain being attempted by the noble woman's knight and then by the nobleman later on kind of just how like he has no self-awareness of like being having respect for like those types of relationships and also how he fails that nightly test yeah so all of this basically these four did come in a culmination in piety which is the last one which Gawain is very pious this entire movie like we said he's sleeping in brothels he's skipping church he does not care about honor as much as of course somebody like King Arthur would for him and trying to build him up for greatness his mother tries to help him as many times as she can along this journey but he always pisses away opportunity or does selfish things that puts himself forward first this is all of course a culminated when he gets to the green chapel where he does wait two days or basically I would say a day not two days he like waits until like Christmas. Like he shows yeah, up. W- er- yeah. He shows up early because he fucks off from the nobleman's house. Yeah, I can't remember if he waits two like day and night cycles or if he just waits till Christmas Day. I think he waits one, but I could be wrong. But anyways, uh, as he's sitting at the chapel, you're like, okay, will he still take his fate? Well, the Green Knight gets up and he's like, yo, you made it. He dropped off the axe. Even let's get to hacking. And Gawain in this moment is like, wait, is this all that's meant to be? And he's like, what else would there be? And Gawain is very hesitant. There are three separate times where he's like, wait, don't do this. And then finally on the last try, he can't do it. And he runs out of the chapel and he ends up going back home where his mother has to basically lick his wounds for him and ends up patching him up. And then he goes back and it can be interpreted one way or another that he either lied to Arthur about committing the quest or maybe was straight up truthful with him. But Arthur has no choice but to give over the kingdom to Gawain in his old age because he has no other heir. And of course, Gawain is gifted the kingdom and is crowned king after Arthur passes. And of course, like you and I pointed out earlier, his girlfriend in the brothel ends up giving birth to his son. But Merlin and him take away the kid because she is not a noble woman, and he basically pays her for her services and then leaves her, which is just terrible it actually left me that was such a dick (laughs) i know it left me with such a sinking feeling in my stomach and of course Gawain is betrothed to another princess in the movie they end up living a life together it seems like and his son grows up to serve in battle one day but is of course killed and Gawain is left gripping his crown at one point but everybody in the kingdom is flinging shit at him like it's a monty python film basically (laughs) And he ends up becoming a bad king. And then, of course, this leads to the overthrowing of his kingdom. And in this last moment, we just see Gawain sitting on the throne looking down. His wife and daughter, who he had with his princess uh, wife, basically go out of the room. And the doors are being barred, and it looks like they're going to be broken open. And the last moment we get is Gawain gripping the sash that is in the uh, place that would have his stab wound. 
and he pulls it out and off with his head it comes down and it's a very brilliant moment because it is juxtaposed back to the scene where Gawain is waiting to be beheaded and his eyes are very wide like he almost had his life flashing before his eyes and of course Gawain is like wait and he ends up taking off the sash with the enchantment and the green knight is like well done Gawain now off with your head and you can interpret that as jokingly he says that being like you are honorable you are now a knight or he literally cuts off his head and he still dies an honorable person but I like to think of it as more of a joking last line where he's like now off with your head and Gawain is allowed to go back and be bestowed as a noble person and a knight and all of his like bad habits in the movie come full circle at the ending where he realizes I can't go out as this dishonorable person I have to accept my fate yeah uh i think it's interesting because like the movie goes in a really drastic drastically different end as do what the story goes with because like you know in the original story they meet up uh you find out that the green knight was actually the nobleman from that house that gawain found i'm, I'm pretty sure and he's just like oh Gwen, it's me. Your mom enchanted me because she wanted to uh, test Arthur's knights and scare his wife because she's a bitch, I guess. And now I'm going to kill you. Yep. <laughs> and so, like, you know, um, he actually, in the original story, he actually doesn't take the sash off. Like, you know, he kind of fails the quest because the original story is more like a singular quest about uh, Gwen going along and failing a single virtue because it's more about him being honorable by like you know doing uh the exchange of blows and you know um not doing any gimmick type thing but you know uh he doesn't reveal that he that he has the sash so he survives by cheating and yes. so the lesson from that is be honest you asshole but in the movie like you know he on in that like false reality he chickens out and you see that because he never learned anything from that quest at all uh he would be he goes on to be terrible at everything like you know he's a bad uh partner to his uh prostitute girlfriend he's a bad knight he's a bad successor to king arthur he's a bad father probably Mm -hmm. um you know, just all around terrible person. His entire family abandons him, like, right at the end as the enemy is taking over Camelot. And then, you know, he just, like, pulls out the green sash from that stab wound. And, you know, that was a really unnerving moment in the movie, just with the sound design, you know, just, like, all the noises the sash was making as he was pulling it out. You know, yeah. just that good old A24 uncomfortableness that yep. we're all used to mm-hmm. at, and yeah and then at the very end like he does the right thing he takes the sash off and he's like alright I'm here to do the honorable thing and then the green knight is like oh that's pretty cool let's kiss basically um, now I, I do want to talk about something that I've heard that's irked me a little bit now there's some people that I have seen review this movie a little bit and they've been like Gawain's like taking off the satch and becoming a knight and a noble person is not justified because of all of his actions that happened previously in the movie. Now, I feel like this is a very, like, I don't want to say ignorant take, but it's almost like, did the movie go over your head a little bit? Because 
the point of it is that there's meant to be a growth for Gawain as a character, and it's set from the beginning that there is that greatness that he wants, but he feels like it, it will come to him if he's just very lazy and he only does the most minute stuff. But at the ending, he has that moment of realization where he's like, I can't do this or people won't see me as an honorable person or a king that died by honor or anything like that. And so that's why Gawain in this last moment is like, I have to become this person that Arthur built me up to be. My mother basically sent me on this quest to be. And I myself have been chasing for quite some time. If you only view it as, oh, he failed all these quests and then he becomes a good person in his last few moments and that's not warranted. I would encourage rewatching the movie because there are subtle moments in it where he grows a little bit, but I will agree a lot of the movie is him just failing and doing the wrong thing. But there is growth in this movie for this character. Don't take it at face value or don't just be like, oh, this guy was bad and then he becomes good in the last five minutes. There is some subtle setup for his character to turn and become that noble knight in this movie. Yeah. Like, um, even considering, like, you know, like, yeah, I... I think I could see why people make the argument of yeah, Gwen fails into success throughout the whole movie. But yeah, there are small moments throughout the film where you could see that, you know, even though he's doing the wrong thing, he is still a good person. Like deep down, like there Arthur isn't completely unwarranted in believing that he can be a great knight. Yeah. Uh, the thing that I think of, like you might be able to think of this more since I think you've seen this movie more than I have is like him like reassembling the uh, skeleton of that woman that um, I forgot to mention this earlier but you know because like later when he goes back to the house he sees the skeleton lying in the bed so like the film technically implies that you know he slept with a skeleton yeah and did not care whatsoever yeah but yeah, Which, um, yeah, like he puts the skull on the pillow, like her skeleton's reassembled. You know, he didn't necessarily had to do that because the skeleton, the ghost didn't specify that. But and yeah, it's that action that allows him to get the axe back. Yes, this is true. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like there is a lot of other things you can interpret from this movie. Like when he eats wild mushrooms and basically trips out, some people say it becomes almost an unreliable narrator the rest of the movie because Gawain could have just tripped balls the rest of the movie and all of this could have been bullshit. Or he died from eating poisonous mushrooms, somebody said. But I feel like there is a lot of things in this movie that does kind of show unreliable narrator uh, gimmicks in it and stuff. Because like you said, with the skeleton in the bed and him fixing it and stuff, like maybe there wasn't actually a ghost and Gawain's just pulling our leg about it. Maybe there wasn't a fox that talked that followed him around. I kind of like that about the movie that do you trust Gawain enough despite his terrible actions to still tell this story of the Green Knight as it goes along and I feel like that's kind of culminated in the three well I would say the two endings you get but one of them you can interpret two ways at the ending but in the two endings that we get for this movie mm-hmm. and I will, I'll say this very fast for the people that thought this was going to be a fucking action packed movie <laughs> seriously have you watched an A24 film like I feel like that's my biggest thing is people are giving it like review bombs they're like oh it's boring there's no action in it have you seen an A24 film? Did you read the original story? Like, this isn't this isn't Lord of the Rings, people. Like, come on. Yeah, like, even in, like, the original story from what I see on the Wikipedia, on the Wikipedia page, in the Wikipedia page, like, 
everything that Gawain did up until him going to the nobleman's house isn't even conveyed to the audience. It's just like, oh, Gawain did some stuff before he met a noble family and kissed all of them. Like, and, like, the movie does build off of that slightly by actually giving Gawain things to do, but it's not like he's running around killing people like he's Lancelot from the uh, Monty Python Holy Grail movie. Like, yeah. it's not That's not what the movie is about. It's a slow burn uh, I want to say character study. Like, mm-hmm. it, if you expected this to just be like a stupid fantasy movie, like, you just you almost deserve to be disappointed by it. Yeah, I would I would agree with that too. Um, yeah. It's kind of why, like you know, I, I'm pretty sure you've seen me say this before, but like it's why I kind of expect Dune to not do so well because you know you'll have the same thing happening again where people will go into that movie expecting it to be like Star Wars or something like that, and they'll come out being like, oh. Why was this story not Star Wars? I I hate this movie because you know you have these people going in like I think some people that I've seen reviewing this movie have been like oh oh this isn't as good as Loki and I'm just like those are two completely different stories why are you comparing them? Yeah um and I get it like this this type of movie is made more for people that are into like that thematic stuff or you like works from A24 that tell these deep and enriching stories and if that type of stuff is not for you that's fine like obviously there are other movies out there that are for you and I kind of enjoy that about this like this is a movie I'm definitely going to rewatch probably is going to be one of my favorites of the year probably is right now my favorite of the year that's come out and nobody was holding that spot for some time I never thought it would come down and now here we are with the green knight and i haven't seen the suicide squad yet but i'm gonna and we'll have to see how that shapes up compared to most i've seen this year but i would say this is a pretty fantastic movie that i would recommend most people see like i said if you like enriching stories and deep thematic movies this is right up your alley if you're not into that stuff like this ain't your type of movie i respect that go out and watch what you like and what you think is really good to dissect yeah and something else i would also like to add is like to me personally as someone who enjoys a lot of arthurian mythology i like i really enjoyed this movie because of like all the small little details of this movie not just from like small hints to the various different things from arthurian mythology but like lots of really good film choices like here's a here's something um something that i liked in the movie was how um well like we already talked about like arthur's crown before but like something similar to that is uh the royal guards that arthur has in his castle you know um yeah they have like you know kind of like roman-esque pauldrons because like it's a thing in arthurian lore that uh the english are uh, descended from uh roman colonists no trojan colonists like how um uh uh, Rome was descended from Trojans, so like the Rome and Britain share that in common. And so, like, and another yeah. good detail with that as well is that those royal guards are the only ones that wear plate armor in the entire movie outside of the Green Knight. So, like, it's importance. It shows the importance of those characters because of like how heavily armored they are. Because you know, the Green Knight is this big supernatural threat and he's supposed to be imposing looking 
So that's why he has that in the Royal Guards, you know, their job is to protect the king. And so that's why they have the heaviest armor out of any of the other characters in the film. And then like small, like film choices that were good. Like, you know, you have stuff like the Green Knight creaking like a tree whenever he moves. Yep. Um, like a lot of small visual Easter eggs. Like, you know, you've already mentioned like the painting that the mm-hmm. lady makes of him. Another one is, I would also say, is like the tapestry that Gawain looks like, that Gawain looks at before. Um, the, the tapestry in the house that Gawain is looking at, like uh, at one point he looks at it and it's just like the nobleman like hunting and chasing a fox. But later on in the film, like I think after uh, Gawain has sex with his wife, uh, like the paintings changed so that the nobleman is hunting um, Gawain instead. Yeah. But yeah, there's just like a lot of things that like appeal to me personally. Yeah. That uh, it's a lot of really good details that I don't think most people are going to pick up on. But I think like the people who do notice that are going to appreciate it. Yeah, and even the little puppet show that plays in the movie uh, a couple times in the beginning. If you notice one thing about it, it's the same story that gets played on repeat over the cycle of the year. And it just kind of shows like this is the only story or song we have to tell of Gawain before he goes on the journey. Mm. And, it, you know, it would be cool to kind of watch that a little bit, I guess, as a kid. But like, imagine you're sitting there, you have all the other Knights of the Round Table telling their stories and you're like, oh, it's Gawain and the Green Knight for the 40th time. And it's just yeah. him going up hacking off the head and then that's it and then and, the I, gr- and then the green knight comes and kills him yeah like, they're just like we don't know how this story's gonna end but it's probably gonna end with gawain dying <laughs> my money's on gawain ain't winning basically <laughs> exactly and that's the thing about the green knight it's a very very well put together movie david lowry two two big thumbs up i think i have it as like uh four and a half stars on letterbox which is a nine out of ten I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Like I said, I recommend the people that like these thematic storytelling movies go out and see it. If you don't, that's fine. There are other movies out there that you like, and I appreciate that. But uh, I'm in love with The Green Knight. Probably my favorite film of the year so far. Like I said, Dalton, your thoughts on The Green Knight? Yeah, I would just want to echo what you said. Uh, This movie isn't going to appeal to everyone, but uh, to the people who are into, like, you know, Arthurian mythology or, like, interesting takes on it or like a24 as a film company i think they are going to be the ones that are going to really get a lot out of this movie so like uh what i've rated it uh i've given it a a like 9.5 out of 10 like you know it's just one of those movies that is like so incredibly solid that like the only real complaints that i have with it are nitpicks like not actual problems with the movie itself yeah uh, but that'll pretty much do it for this Green Knight review. We actually got a lot more than I thought we would today through this, which was great to unpack another A24 film. Uh, like I said, guys, I did a recent collaboration video over Whiplash with Dalton over on his channel, Westmore Films. It'll plug in the podcast description. Uh, if you guys like Dalton and his content, then I recommend going over and subscribing, turning on the bell notification for when he uploads videos. Uh, I know you've said the Snyder videos in the back burner, but I imagine there's other content coming out that you could plug yep. here. Yes, um, the Boba Fett video that uh, I think Bacon mentioned in our very first video together, that is finally up and running. Either that or a video on the Bad Batch is going to be the next thing that comes out on my channel. Like, 
the next long video like a lot of videos that i've been doing have been like shorter like 10 minute things but uh either one of those star wars ones is going to be a return to like more long form analysis type stuff i have my uh 300 uh subscriber special coming out later this month which is going to be a, a like me reading comments on uh the palpatine video essay that i put out last year and like as a final plug um if you enjoyed like me discussing like a24 last year i put out a video on the lighthouse which is just me just like going through the film like discussing the plot like a lot of like the real life and um the thought and literature stuff that uh that film draws inspiration from yep but yeah that that's all i have to say and make sure that you go and check out the video that me and bacon did on whiplash yep so that'll do it for this edition of hayden's entertainment hour uh, i will see dalton hopefully in the future where we'll get to talk about another movie that comes out or tv show pending um but we will see what the future brings for dalton coming back on the podcast like i said check out his channel i will watch the suicide squad now guys so that way we can get a review with that and charles up and rolling here very soon but thank you for coming on dalton and talking about the green knight with me mm-hmm. thank you for having me back again No problem. And that'll do it, guys. We shall see you next time with The Suicide Squad. Hello and welcome back to Hayden's Entertainment Hour. Today we're going to be talking about the much-anticipated The Suicide Squad that came out recently. So, The Suicide Squad. This movie has been talked about to death currently by almost everybody that I know. I was on vacation when it came out, so I did not get to see this movie like everybody else did on opening day, and I got it spoiled for me when I was on vacation by two guys when I was waiting in line for a ride, and it irked me a lot because those two character deaths that got spoiled for me, I just thought about the entire vacation, and then when they actually happened in the movie, I was even more kind of mad at myself, but honestly, spoilers are going to happen. Luckily, that never happened for something like Endgame when I went to see it, so I went into that movie (laughs) spoiler-free. But for the most part, yeah, I would say I finally got to sit down and watch this on Sunday and then fell asleep uh, during it halfway and then had to finish it on Monday. But for the most part, um, I really enjoyed this. I would say compared to the stinking pile of poo-poo that we got in 2016, this is a breath of fresh air and the Suicide Squad movie that we all wanted. James Gunn is a wonderful director that made both the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, movies like Super and Slither and stuff like that. He has just made a lot of great films in his filmography. You also might know him for writing the early Scooby-Doo films that came out years ago. And James Gunn is just a wonderful director. I feel like if you give him full creative control, he will give you a movie that will knock your socks off. And this is what we got here was a movie that knocked my socks off. I was really impressed with. I really liked Um, I gotta say, though, there has been a little something that I want to talk about before I turn it over to Charles here. A lot of people were telling me that this was, like, one of the best comic book movies that has come out in quite some time, which I would sort of agree with in a way. Yeah, this is one of the better comic book movies that has come out. But they were also saying uh, saying stuff like, it subverts so many superhero tropes and it doesn't feel like it follows a lot of the cliches. And as we unpack it here today, I'll kind of call some bullshit on those comments, but we're not going to do that here and right now. But for the most part, I really enjoyed The Suicide Squad. I am glad that I got to see this movie twice now. Um, I honestly think it is a really fun blast, and I would recommend everybody goes and checks it out. Charles, did you enjoy The Suicide Squad? Yeah, I actually, I love the movie. <laughs> I enjoy it a lot. I, 
uh, when I watched the opening scene, uh, I I was like, this is it. This is the best thing that's going to happen in the whole movie. It is going downhill from now on. You know what? I was I was I was wrong. The movie got better even after that opening, and, and you know I'm happy that it did. Uh, but like you said, uh, and also something I wanted to say because I really like this movie. I love it, but but I also think it like for all the control that was given to James Gunn, I think that some problems that the movie may have are part of you know that creative process he had with the movie. Like, but I don't mind them. I I do not mind them as much as other as other people might. Okay. Because I, I like I honestly like his vision and how he pulled all of this together. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but yeah, so the Suicide Squad. If you want to know the plot of this movie, basically it is the Suicide Squad is tasked with tracking down something called Pro- uh, Project Starfish, and they have to go to this island and destroy something called the Jotunheim that contains all of the information for Project Starfish and save the freaking world, basically. So. The Suicide Squad actually does a lot of great things here. First off, I appreciate that Gunn acknowledged the Ayer film. I just figured, you know, he was going to gloss over it and be like, no, the first film didn't happen. This is a soft reboot. But no, he brings back characters like Rick Flagg and Jai Courtney as Captain Boomerang and Harley Quinn, who's already been established in her own movie and stuff like that. But um, I do appreciate the fact that Gunn does acknowledge the events of the first movie. He keeps the same actors around and stuff. Gunn did show a respect for David Ayer in a way because I know Ayer has been very upset right now that his cut of the movie is not coming out and he feels like Warner Brothers wronged him by not giving him creative control and I can understand all that coming from Ayer's side right now I'm just glad that Gunn was able to acknowledge the first movie that he set the groundwork for even if it's a really terrible movie but uh, I gotta say this movie starts off by subverting expectations hard and I kind of love it so if you remember the trailers that showed people like Pete Davidson, Michael Rooker, uh, Nathan Fillion, you were like, oh wow, so are we gonna have the main Suicide Squad, like Poster Childs, and then all of these characters that will go along with them to die off at random points? No, the whole opening is a big subversion where all of these characters that are in the background of the poster literally die as this Suicide Squad on the beach to be a diversion. And I love it in a way, this is the most James Gunn thing ever, and you don't expect it, because you literally had an actor like Michael Rooker out there, who you were like, okay, we're gonna take him pretty deep in the plot, this guy is a pretty good established actor, but no, he literally runs away like a coward in the beginning and gets his head blown off. Also because, you know, this kind of stuff doesn't happen so lot in superhero movies, like, not only blood and violence, it's, it's like, not that much in them, but also you don't see a lot of characters just getting killed at the moment, like a fucking genocide like this. Yeah, this and it's a brilliant opening, like you see some of the funniest stuff, like the weasel literally drowns because he can't <laughs> swim. Yeah, they check the weasel could swim. Yeah, um, TDK detaches his arms and gets some and shot. Just like, he starts just slapping people around. Yep. Uh, Ma- I think your name was like Magna Mongol, something like Mongol. that, the orange lady, Mongol. Mongol. Yeah. Uh, she jumps on a helicopter to try to stop it, but ends up crashing it out of control crazy. <laughs> and it ends she up killing Captain poor Captain... Yeah, it kills poor <laughs> Captain Boomerang. Uh, there's just so many different things that happen on this beach. Even Javelin gets shot in the chest. Just people die yeah. left and right in this beginning. Like I said, Michael Rooker gets his head blown off trying to run away. 
and you're like wow so all of these actors that they had propped up in the trailers and on the posters and stuff die like you don't see that coming <laughs> from the, most superhero movies and the anymore. marketing dude remember they were also making interviews for the movie <laughs> Yeah, and they, I know, that's the they were like, part. "I'm only in these five minutes, and I'm going to make these this all the way. I don't care." Yeah, and I kind of love that. James, that is the most James Gunn thing to happen, and I love it in a way. So, like we said, there are two teams that are established at the beginning: the team that all dies, and then the team that is led by Idris Elba, which will go over each of these characters a little bit. So. We have Idris Elba that plays Bloodsport, and you can make the argument, basically, he's just here to replace Will Smith. There are certain traits of his character that kind of feel copy and pasted from Will Smith. For one, he's very good with weapons. He's a crack shot with bullets, basically. He's also got the leadership mentality, and he's a father trying to be a father figure in his daughter's life, much like Will Smith in the first movie. Um, but Bloodsport is really well played by Idris Elba. He feels like a bad guy at the beginning like he doesn't even care about his like his daughter's wellness and safety at first like he's screaming fuck you at her back and forth and stuff and fuck calling you, her a moron yeah you, for uh, robbing an apple watch basically but they call it a style watch um and i also love the fact that he still does have a compassionate side to him a little bit because when amanda waller is like i could bring your daughter in here and they could do terrible things to her in prison he is like i will kill you if you make any threats to my daughter so it does set the groundwork that Idris Elba does have a good side for him in this beginning, which but is you nice, have but to push him, that's the thing. Yeah, you have to push him. And I kind of like that at the beginning, he wants nothing to do with this squad he saddled with. Like, he's literally introduced to Peacemaker. <laughs> he saw the previous movie. He was like, yeah, he ah, I saw that shit. I'm not doing that. Uh, he's introduced to Peacemaker that literally has the same background and makeup as him. His father was a soldier that trained him to kill at a very young age. And it's hilarious because Idris Elba even acknowledges that. He's like, are you having a laugh? And he's like, no, he's just like you, but better, basically. And John Cena and him, the entire movie, have like this alpha male thing where it's like, I want to be leader. No, I want to be leader. And they're constantly trying to outdo each other. Yeah. Uh, And I also think it was awesome that we got a character like King Shark in this movie that I feared was going to be a discount group, but luckily is not. King Shark stands on his own. Oh, yeah as this ancient god basically or a descendant of an ancient god but he's played by Sylvester Stallone that sounds like a more beat up Rocky basically and it's kind of brilliant in a way that they utilize him because while he is mostly comedic relief King Shark also has like a very small arc in the movie where he just wants friends and he gains friends in this movie so good for King Shark uh, then you get the polka dot man, which literally he throws polka dots at people. They even <laughs> That's make a joke, joke out of that. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, polka dot man, which I'll get into a little bit later as the movie goes on. Uh, for the most part, his arc, I could say, is kind of satisfying, but also pisses not, me off in a way I mean, with like, how they handle it. I think they did good. Like, James Gunn, ah, this is going to spoil. I'll save it for later, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyways, we get you our... For, you sp- forgot... I know, I'll get to her, because she's she's probably the best character. Uh, Ratcatcher 2. Ratcatcher 2 is introduced because Ratcatcher 1 died long ago, and her superpower is literally controlling rats. But she's the only one with a compassionate heart at the beginning. She tries to help each of her team members, and she wants to do good. But at the same time, she's working with a bunch of hardened criminals that don't want to open up to her at first and are very resentful. And I kind of love that we have this team dynamic going forward. You got the two alpha males, you have the kind-hearted female, you have the king shark, and then the (laughs) polka dot man. And this is the crew that we work with the entire time. And also, yes, we have, of course, uh, Rick Flagg, and he is off trying to be the leader of this small ragtag that all gets killed at the beginning. And then Harley Quinn, of course, is back. Who survives. 
yeah, who does survive. And then Harley Quinn is back also in this movie, who I guess was captured and brought back to the Suicide Squad after the events of Birds of Prey, which happened off screen. Obviously, well, they, they, they said it. She, she she got ripe angry while still in the bank, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. She like tried to rob a bank. <laughs> she tried to rob a bank and they got her. <laughs> yeah, and so this whole groundwork of characters that we have starting off is pretty brilliant. I like that at first they all don't trust each other and they all just kind of don't want anything to do with each other. Like King Shark literally tries to eat Ratcatcher too, and Bloodsport has to step in and be like, "Look, we're gonna kill this thing." And then they're like, "No, we can't." He's the strongest member of our team, so they have to make friends with him. John Cena goes into this village with him, and they're killing people left and right with and trying to outdo yeah. each other. Yeah. Uh, at first, Polka I, I love that line. You know, I love the line like, "No one likes to show up except if what they do is fucking up." And then like, "Fuck, he's right." Yeah, I love and, that. I don't know. It's, it's a nice and, moment after yeah. the whole dick measuring contest yeah uh polka dot man is very brilliant also because he's so awkward and doesn't know what to say around people at first but he gets better as the movie goes on and he becomes more comfortable in who he is and i kind of love that in a way yeah and i feel like there's a lot of great groundwork here at the beginning for these characters as it goes along and i also got to say it does a lot of good here in the beginning showcasing that they are bad guys that don't think twice like there is a scene where like charles and i were talking about they murder all of these people in the village right <laughs> yeah everybody and they do they do horrible acts to kill them even they burn some of them some of them explode or gets eaten by king shark uh, like a pair of them get attacked by polka dot man's polka dots mm -hmm. <laughs> like they they die in horrible ways and it's amazing it's so it is. like it's amazingly comedic yeah, How and as the topic gets, yeah, yeah, it, and as it goes along, it's kind of brilliant in a way because they find Rick Flag, who was captured, and he's fine. He's sitting there drinking tea with the leader of the Resistance Army, and he's like, "How did you guys get in here without alerting the guards? I'm trying to make a pact here <laughs> with the Resistance Army, and they have just murdered basically a bunch of good guys." The and they're whole like, army. Oh yeah, yeah, we didn't see any people when we came in here except for Pogodot Man. It's like. I imagine they were all my mother and I murdered them. And it's a brilliant sequence that showcases, like, they really have no moral compass. They just go in killing and don't think twice yeah. about the people, which they, I they guess... Are, they are that kid, that yeah. your old kid who has a controller and starts playing Grand Theft Auto and just kills everybody. Just kills everyone, yeah. And <laughs> I guess that kind of works for a character like Peacemaker that's kind of like a more fucked up Captain America in a way, because literally one of Peacemaker's morals is I cherish peace with all my heart. I don't care how many men, women, and children I have to kill to get it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Captain America's on the opposite side. Yeah. And it's kind of brilliant that they have that subversion in the beginning where it's like, oh, these bad guys don't really care about what they do. All they know how to do is kill. But as the movie goes along, they do get better about it in a way. Just not They explore the people. character. Yeah, yeah, they explore these characters a lot better. Now, I also will say the movie does divulge into kind of two plots. Now, for example, you start off with the main plot that is basically the Suicide Squad trying to get to the Jotunheim. And then Harley has her own little subplot in the movie. And oh. Harley's subplot basically is she got captured at the beginning on the beach by the people that work for the two dictators that are running the government of the Corto Maltese. The one guy has the hots for Harley and wants to make her his queen. And so they go on this little date together, but then he's like, yeah, I'm going to use this Project Starro that they used on their enemies for my enemies, and I'm going to do it to children and stuff. 
And the subversion is you think, oh, Charlie's or Harley's gonna fall for the psychopath, but then she ends up murdering him because she's like, yeah. I made a promise to myself, yeah. I'm not gonna do this again and uh, date another <laughs> psychopath. And it's kind of yeah. funny in a way. I didn't think it was the funniest sequence on the planet, but I think it was kind of nice growth for her I character like a little bit to where she doesn't want to have that abusive, crazy boyfriend in her life anymore after no. the Joker. And I like that she's setting morals for herself. It feels like this is a character that's actually grown in this terrible DC universe, which is kind of <laughs> lovely. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was going to say that uh, I I like like that this this part part of the movie exists, even though like you say it feels. No, did you say that it felt weird, like out of place, maybe? Uh, not out of place. So uh, I guess it's... if you've read my, you probably read my letterbox review. No, wait, I haven't actually. Okay. Um. Well, anyways, I won't get into the Harley subplot a little bit, but you're kind of you're kind of veering in the right direction on what I think about this subplot that goes on. But like I said, Harley subplot is she murders this dictator guy, then she's captured, then she breaks out on her own basically, and then meets up with the Suicide Squad, and then they could go to the Jotunheim. And then the rest of the plot is dedicated to them basically exploring the Jotunheim. And they literally get there like an hour and 20 minutes into the movie. And I was kind yeah. of surprised by that because it feels like that would kind of be like, you know, almost the, the climax Marvel thing where it's like, yeah, you're in the climax. You've uh, gone an hour and 50 minutes in. Here's the big action packed finale basically that's going on. But James Gunn manages to keep it at a point that you don't expect. And then instead of making it go all full on at, like action here at the ending, he actually explores things a little bit, which I think are kind of brilliant. We forgot um, about, we forgot to mention Peter Capaldi. Oh yeah, Peter Capaldi is the thinker in this too, which I guess I'll get into the villains a little bit as this movie goes on, but Peter Capaldi is a lot of fun in this, I will yeah. say, as the thinker. <laughs> they got him to yeah. wear a tracksuit and the drip, basically, and he's the one that basically can talk and control Starro in the movie. and. You come to discover he's done some messed up stuff to Starro as it goes along, but basically he has a lot of fun as the thinker in the movie. But as it goes along and we make it to the Jotunheim an hour and 20 some minutes in, I was like, okay, where is the movie going to go besides doing the generic thing where you have the big final act against the monster? Well, it turns out that Peter Capaldi and the rest of them discover that, oh, well, it turns out that Americans found Starro first, and then they made a pact with the Coto Maltese government to basically send it here for testing so that they could test it on innocent people here in the village and stuff. And Rick Flag and them and Peacemaker come to basically a moral oh, compass decision. Too. And Ratcatcher too come to a moral compass uh, decision of do we take this information about our own government and give it to the people or do we hide it? And that's where it becomes the big twist of the movie that Peacemaker was technically under the orders by Amanda Waller to yeah. not let that information get out. And it becomes this very tense battle between Rick Flagg and Peacemaker on who's going to win. The guy and trying to hide the information or the guy that wants to let the people know. But meanwhile, and this is part of the movie structure because, you know, James Gunn said, fuck it, I'm going to make this movie like a comic book. And yeah. Yeah, in many ways he did. Like the, the the way he shot and framed the movie, it's amazing, and it it, it reminded me a lot of comic book. And, and like I said, the structure of the movie is also there's a lot of you know going back in time and telling things in non chronological order. And like you said, the subplot with Harley that feels 100% out of the comic book because like some people say it doesn't add much to the story, but I like it. I just love to have that side story with her. But, yeah, but yeah I as that. as the you know as peacemaker and and no before I mean before peacemaker and Rick Flag starts fighting, um, we go back and we see that 
why because before they started fight there there was an explosion because they were going to blow up Jordanheim so and the explosion started early and then we as viewers see that why that started early because well, Polkadot Man accidentally started the chain reaction because they killed Milton yeah and Milton is a running joke yeah, we, we didn't bit. mention this before but yeah Milton is like a character in the movie who helps the the squad at one point and he just stays with them yeah basically <laughs> you know, the entire runtime yeah like they meet like at the what 40 minute mark maybe mm-hmm. and then they then he he's like a part of the squad <laughs> yeah he's just there in the background nobody realizes nobody ever talked to him he's just there and then he just dies and, and yeah. Pokemon Man is like Milton died and, and then like was he here Who's Milton says Harley. Uh, I love it. Too. But yeah. yeah. Like they started to blow a Jonathan and then then they accidentally freed Starro. Yeah. <laughs> and Peter Capaldi gets his comeuppance for basically torturing Starro and having his way with Starro and just basically making Starro go through a lot of horrible deeds and abuse, yeah. Yeah, Starro tears him apart and basically turns him into a bunch of uh, meat that point he's literally yeah. just exploded and he explodes against a window yeah it, it's kind of a brilliant death in a way by james gunn but one thing that i like about in this third act is you would think like in the most cliche way like the good guy is going to be peacemaker and he's going to get away with the information and the world is going to be saved as a result of this but no james gunn subverts this moment and rick flag literally gets a piece of i want to say like <laughs> ceramic shoved in his chest yeah, I think it's ceramic. Yeah, like then... he shows his fucking heart being yep. punctured by that piece of ceramic. Like holy shit! Yeah, <laughs> he was it's, like, it's he, he was like, he's dead. Deal with it. This is the proof. <laughs> yeah, um, and I kind of like the subversion because then Peacemaker not only kind of wins, but he also gets in a way away with it, but Ratcatcher ends up grabbing the disc and running away, and then it looks like he's going to kill Ratcatcher and get away with it again, but then Idris Elba from that explosion that you mentioned earlier has been falling down from multiple floors and lands there, and we get a really cool sequence where it was alluded to at the beginning, Idris Elba knows that John Cena used smaller bullets because the two of them fire at each other, and Idris Elba's bullet goes straight through John Cena's and hits him in the neck, and he's like, how did you know this? He's like, I use smaller bullets. Because as an assassin, you're not supposed to give away your priorities. And John Cena gave away one of his priorities to uh, Idris Elba. And it's kind of brilliant in a way. Because then from here, Idris Elba's like given the disc and told by Ratcatcher what it could be used for and stuff. But he never acknowledges like, okay, yeah, we're going to make sure this gets out to the press. He just doesn't say anything because, again he's still going through that arc a little bit of like, do I have some goodness in me? Or am I still like a straight, I'm too badass to be here kind of guy? And I love that in a way. And by this point of the movie, we only have like, what, five squad members alive? Well, alive, yeah. Yeah, we only have five left. And I gotta give hats off to this for James Gunn. I appreciate that we didn't just have some generic bad guy, like just become the big bad guy of the movie. Instead, it's Starro, a literal monster. Like, yeah. do you know how lame it would have been if it was just the Quartzel Maltese dictators were the bad guys at the ending? Like, the equivalent of uh, what's his face and Black Widow being the end villain 
and I kind of love that. I kind of love that it's Starro in this movie. Yeah, this big the monster. Day, at the end of the day, it's Starro because the reason why he is the bad guy at the end is because, because even though the Multicortes, uh, you know, government are actually the bad guys who started it all. Like Starro, uh, like the way his character is presented in the movie, he fits with the themes of, you know, control over individuals by one big organis- organism in this case. Yeah, and Starro is beautifully crafted on screen. I oh yeah, he very, looks right. Very good comic to screen adaptation, and they do my boy proud. Uh, he even has his little Starros that come out of him that latch onto people's faces, which I gotta say. I love how Gunn acknowledges that they're basically walking corpses at that point underneath the star. Like, oh, dude, remember when the movie became a horror movie? Yeah, and you know, you don't see that more in comic book movies because like, let's say when somebody's under mind control, it's like, oh, at the ending, everybody's safe. But no, in this movie, they're not safe. They're literally dead. (laughs) Dead. Like, underneath that. And they're even dead as soon as Starro is like beaten at the end of the movie. And I think that's like one of the darkest aspects is that Gunn acknowledges, yeah, while they did sort of save the day, a lot of people died. And, like, there is no coming back from this. Like, they saved the world, but they killed a shit ton of people at the end of the day. Yeah. And And it wasn't necessary. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't even necessarily their fault. Um, I do want to say, I I was talking to another person about this movie, which you'll know when I I name him here, uh, Charles, but Prom. I was talking to Prom a little bit, that I thought they were going to set something up with a moment uh, when Starro takes over with all the little starfish. So, Idris Elba's mask breaks at one point, right? Yeah. As he's coming down and stuff. And then at one point when all the little Starros are coming out and uh, Ratcatcher puts her mask on, she's like, everybody put your mask on. That's how you, or like cover your face or something like that. And then I was like, oh, Idris Elba doesn't have his mask to cover yeah, his face. I, I, what yeah, if the subversion here is like, oh, he gets taken over and then it's like Ratcatcher and all of them have to figure out what to do to defeat Starro. But that never happens. Yeah, and like I was kind of talking yeah. to Prom about how like that feels like a kind of misdirection setup. That like, why did his mask have to break? No, then, I, in a way? I I think that James Gunn wanted to do that maybe at one point in like in the script, but then he made he put the scene of of Starro like literally killing you if you take the star out of your face. So then he was like, ah, shit, I can do that because they're going to die. Because I, I also think, like, maybe Polkadot Man was going to get taken over. Yeah, well, which would have kind of made more sense because, like, I understand, like, Ratcatcher would survive or, like, Harley didn't have anything on her face and King Shark, they literally couldn't attach to his face because yeah. of how big it was. Um, but I guess it, it just kind of feels like a really weird, like, moment they kind of had set up that maybe felt like a rewrite a little bit. Um, but as this final sequence is going on, one thing that's rather interesting is they basically are told, okay, Starro can literally destroy this island. You guys go home. You destroyed the Jotunheim. Yeah, and okay, first, guys, mission done. You can leave now. Yeah, and at first it looks like, oh, maybe they're gonna. But then, of course, like I said about Idris Elba's arc a little bit of, oh, I'm kind of becoming a good guy. There is some moral good in me. He turns around to save the city. Amanda Waller's like, I'm going to blow your head off if you guys don't all turn I around. love my own Davies in that scene. Yeah, she has more character to her character than in the, su- the original She's Suicide so Squad. She's so fucking livid in yeah, that she moment. Is. Um, I love her. 
Yeah, and she does terrific in it. Um, and her own staff ends up knocking her out. So that way they yeah. can help the remaining Suicide Squad members. And they go to take on Starro. And each of them has their own set of what they need to do to take him on. King Shark yeah. just has to try and eat Starro. Polka Dot we Man didn't has to mention it, but Harley has Javelin's Javelin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and she she's throughout the movie just like I don't know why I have this, but I I I have this. I need to do something with it. And then, then during that climax, she's like, "Wait, I know what to do with it now." Yeah, and I think in a way, uh, I kind of like it because everybody does utilize their strengths a little bit in the ending, and. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that is a little, and I kind of hated this a little bit. So, Polka Dot Man, um, <laughs> is like, do you see who that is? That's okay, your mom. We, did, we didn't mention this before, I think. Yeah, I don't think we. Well, like, it at we, all. we just made like like the nod of when he mentions in the Rebel Camp, but yeah, like Polka Dot Man has this. How do we call this? Uh, this thing that he 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 sees his mother everywhere in every person because because she she abused him and and basically gave him a sickness that yeah gave him super tried yeah, to give him gave, superpowers basically and and gave him the the, the he the reason why he can throw polka dots is because that's an interdimensional illness i think that's how they describe it yep so, and so he's been so traumatized by that that he sees his mother everywhere, and that's why he 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 gets an easier um, an easier time killing people because he's like, "I love my mother, and I want to kill my mother." Yeah. So when <laughs> so here at the ending, then when he confronts his fifty foot mother that's attacking <laughs> the building, he ends up using the polka dots to shoot her leg basically and break it, and you know Starro breaks his little uh, squid arm or his little tentacle basically. I don't know and, what it is in a starfish. I, I yeah, I don't know. Like what it would be either. I just call it his little appendage basically. Um, and then polka dots man screams, "I'm a superhero!" Uh, and I is love crushed. That. And then I don't he like. Dies. <laughs> now I'm the only one that may not like this. Me and a couple people kind of talked about this a little bit. That also weren't hot on it. I don't like it because it feels too predictable for a character like this to go out. Because the minute he screamed, "I'm a superhero," I'm like, "Oh my god, he's gonna die from this, isn't it?" Because he turns to say something like, "I'm a mother," and then he gets, of course, crushed. And I was so pissed off by that because I like this character's growth we got, and his death is a very cliche comedic trope of a character rising up in this last moment, becoming badass, and then the world comes crashing down on him and he dies. <laughs> I wanted that moment subverted to where we see someone like Polka Dot Man make it to the ending that's really weird, but instead it kind of felt like James Gunn followed a cliche here that I'm not a big fan of in most movies. I, I think that... Um... I was going to say something else, but I forgot what it was. Okay, but the one thing I was going to say is that James Gunn went to George R.R. Martin's character assassination class because he has this rule. If you have a character, and if you have this uh, arc planned for them, and then you finish the arc, what do you do with them? Easy. You kill them. <laughs> that's, that's the yeah, easiest way to get rid of them. That's what sucks, is I really I, wish Polka Dot Man got the inversion of that I, type of trope, but I, I guess I not. also think he was too he was too powerful. Honestly, he, he like you said, he with his polka dots he destroyed Star Road's limp and, and you know they needed more they needed more of a challenge. 
Well, they, I guess one thing they never establish about him is how far does this polka dot power go? Like, is there a certain point that it, like, reaches or climaxes that he can't go any farther with it? Um, but anyways, uh, after... I just think it's, like, eternal. Like, like you know, they mention every night he has to release the polka dots two days at least. Oh, yeah, the someone wants to him. die. Even yeah, then, like, he could have just kept shooting until Starro's, like, limbs completely came off or yeah, something. Yeah, because he, he stopped I mean. to scream, the, the movie would the most stop. frustrating part. Well, that's what I mean. The movie would be over, like, and there wouldn't be that, that, most, that much of a challenge if Pokemon is the one who killed Starro by the, at the end of the it day. It would have been a cool little arc for him, though, to confront yeah, well, his demon and win. Yeah, but it's a Suicide Squad. No Polka don't mind the movie. I you know? know. Well... It does become the Rat Catcher Save the Day movie at the end. Of nah, the end, argue. yeah. Uh, but anyways, way, yeah. so after Polka Dot Man dies, uh, we, of course, move on to the squad is basically falling apart in a way. Idris Elba has to fight off the zombified Starro. Yeah, uh, I love, I love how he has a lot of fucking weapons. <laughs> yeah, he has, like, all these weapons on him, and then he eventually has no more. And Ratcatcher uses the one weapon that she has, which is all of the rats, rats because yeah. I don't think people know this, rats, out, rats outnumber humans. And I think yeah. that's a terrifying statistic <laughs> to think about. Uh, literally, there are thousands of rats living beneath us that could eat us all, and we just we never think about something like that. But because that's what ends up happening out, to Starro. He gets yeah. eaten alive by rats, and it's terrifying. Like, I remember being squeamish, both watching it on my screen at home, but also in theaters. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't get irked by that shit, <laughs> honestly, like, it's, it's, it's not that it's not bad or horrible, it's just that, you know, I didn't mind it, <laughs> but the disease-ridden rats are hard for some people to be like, oh, yeah, how do yeah, I no, not I, get it? I get it, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, and also, if... I like, I like that part of the movie, because, I, I also, because, okay, we didn't mention this, but before this, there was a flashback that show was... What happened to Redcatcher One? Oh yeah, uh, he was a, yeah, he was a her father. Yeah, yeah he, he was uh, something an ad- addicted to some kind of drug. I don't, I don't know. It was like meth. I don't know. Probably heroin. Heroin, exactly. Yeah. It's heroin. And and during that moment in the climax, he I mean, Redcatcher Two re- re- remembers a moment with his father, which she he tells her that. Uh, if rats have purpose, who are the you know the, the low the low the, the they are low animals as they are because they live beneath us and they have they have almost nothing to do. If they have a purpose, then how 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 come any human cannot have a purpose? Like uh, yeah, and uh, it's... like I I like the message of the movie because you can see throughout all of it uh, how. Misfit, misfits, misunderstood people come together to save the world, basically, in this movie. Yeah, and I kind of, I kind of love. There's a moment too where Harley jumps into the eye of Starro and, and it, uses the javelin. You're just yeah. thinking about it a little bit. You're like, oh, that's not water. She's an eye fluid right now, which was kind of yeah. gross to think about. And all the rats come through, and you can see the tear on it in the opening. And the I love. Eat it. I fucking love how the music is all optimistic, and then the rats start eating. You start eating Starro. it. And you're like, oh, it's set to uh, this. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and, and Harley, just... Harley's like, oh, how cute this is. <laughs> this <laughs> like, is like, adorable. This is adorable. They're eating his inside. Yeah, and 
Starro gets defeated being eaten by rats. There's a very sad last line where he's like, yeah. I was happy floating looking at the stars. And you're kind of like, well, poor Starro just never wanted to even be brought to planet Earth. He was exactly. vibing he in was, space. He was vibing in space. And then he was like, what the fuck am I doing here? Get no. me out. NASA showed up and was like, hey, look at that cool starfish. And they took Mine. it, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Starro's defeated and murdered. And then uh, the drive, Idris Elba does make a decision. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to use this drive as blackmail, Waller. You let us all walk free. My daughter never gets harmed again, or this goes public. And she's like, okay, I guess I'll make that deal. And so they all get to go free at the ending, which is kind of cool. I guess we'll kind of circle back a little bit. I'll cover some other stuff before I get into complaints and maybe some of the uh, spicier stuff with it a little bit. So Uh, they do politics a little bit in this movie. And it, you you and I kind of talked about how we didn't really want to acknowledge it a ton here on the podcast talking I mean, about I, it. I don't, I don't mind the politics in the movie. I can yeah, see I the don't either. some people um, have. I kind of like, like that Gunn is taking a stab at dictatorships almost a little bit because the dictatorship structure in this movie is that it was at first this really hot guy that's got the government. He dies. Then this old like uh, general takes over. Mary he Tully, dies. Yeah. Another general takes over, and then the resistance army comes in and kills all of these generals, and then they are free to hold democratic elections. And I guess it's kind of a nice way of saying, like, fuck dictatorships in a way, which is cool. I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that. I mean, overall, like, the movie, like I told you, is about how American interventionism, how this great power, this great organism, like, a, a country tries to control smaller, maybe even uh, even countries that they look as lesser than them. You know, mm-hmm. this yeah, whole... It's, it's definitely this is a, an this angle is a, of This that. is a lead motif that's been repeated throughout the movie with the dictatorship and with sorrow. And, and you know, like, I don't mind it because it's simple enough for me it to is, say, oh, yeah. okay, I understand where you're going with this. And I think that's what makes a character like Peacemaker interesting to get his yeah. own TV series <laughs> yeah. who wants to preserve that way of like American peace and justice, which is very wrong in a way to just kind of not let stuff like that get acknowledged. Um, and, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking that. forward He's to that yeah. show now because not only is John Cena very good as Peacemaker in this, but that character is a He's lot of fun to yeah. get yeah, into. Uh, and I don't know what they're going to do. They kind of alluded that it's going to take place in the past and present after this movie. Because, yes, I did say John Cena does die in this movie. But if you pay attention to the post credits, it looks like he's alive. So, uh, oh, oh, wait, wait, oh, I'm hearing something. Some re- reports are saying that Weasel is alive. Oh, yes, Weasel is alive. And I was so happy the when I saw that. The first post credits in Weasel is alive. And he just, he's just like... I'll, I'll throw the, the bitch by the end of the post-credits. I, I love it. And then, <laughs> some and people then are like, "Good <laughs> Davis, I became the first one to die in this movie." Basically. I know. And some people are like, "Well, wouldn't Waller just detect the vital signs and then blow up the thing in the back of his neck?" I, I would like to think that maybe she—I don't know—lets Weasel she forgot. go. Maybe she, she forgot. But I doubt it. I don't want to think about Weasel getting killed. But it, it was kind of cool to see that Weasel was still alive. I was like, damn, I'm so excited to see this creepy character on screen. And then he died at the beginning. And then he turned out to be alive. I was like, oh, awesome. So maybe I mean, But it was funny how he fucking died. Honestly. Yeah, it's funny how he drowns because nobody <laughs> checks to see if he can swim. And yeah. it's, a, it's a brilliant thing. So um, this is still, I would say, a very, very good movie. Now, 
Charles, you've not read my letterbox, but I'll give you a little taste of what I put yeah. in it, basically. So, I'm not the biggest fan of Harley Quinn, I will say. A oh, lot damn. of people, I know that a lot of people will get very upset just hearing me say that. They're like, how do you not like Harley Quinn, Margot I mean, Robbie? Now, yeah. I like Margot Robbie. She's a very good actress. I will say I love most things that she's in. I've just always kind of not liked how Harley Quinn is written and some of the comedy for her a little bit. I think it's comedy is the biggest part. It's a little cringy for me, and I know that humor is subjective, but most of the time she's very cringily written for me, and I don't get into her character a ton. I know a lot of people love her, and that's perfectly fine. She's just not a character I connect with. But in this movie, like I said, she's given a subplot. And this subplot, yeah. while to many they don't mind it, I kind of wasn't vibing with as much because it felt like a subplot you can kind of cut out and not a ton would change other than she killing that one dictator guy and her having a very well choreographed and put together action sequence. But for the most I part, that, yeah. I did not care much for her subplot in the movie and it kind of felt inconsequential. I was talking with some other people about how if you cut it out, not much has changed. And I just kind of feel like if you wanted this subplot to be cared more by people like me, you have to give it kind of a little bit more than just she murders a dictator. Because otherwise, she could have just followed the rest of the squad around the entire movie like the first one. I mean, you know, this is what I'm telling you about the themes of the movie. Like, the subplot is also about that of somebody wanting to take control of another person who they, or another you know organism that they seem as lesser than them. In this case, the dictator is like, you know what? I want you to murder me, Harley. I know I captured you. I know I, I killed all of your friends. Don't marry me because you know I want you to marry me. And then when she doesn't do that, she gets captured and tortured. And then she's just like, nah, fuck that. And she kills almost everyone in front of her. You know, like th that's the theme of the movie. Like people getting like abused because they are deemed as lesser and then they get in revenge in a way um yeah i don't mind that a, in that way it's a way but, to look at it in a way yeah but, but i also you know I, I also like the character of harley queen in general i most recently i've i've learned to really like it really like her it's, uh, I really like the character I don't have a problem with it. yeah I was gonna say you've probably rewatched Birds of Prey haven't you no I have rewatched the movie like three times already and I oh, love really? more every time <laughs> yeah I, oh. I, I, I really like the movie Oh, okay. I just it. I just streamed it for a couple people for the first two, uh, yeah, no, time not too long ago I, I saw that yeah and so Harley Quinn may not be for me um, now I guess I will get, get over the one thing that I kind of alluded to at the beginning a lot of people were saying that this is one of the best comic book movies ever made, which I will kind of say I could see that because it's so different from most. But a lot of people were also saying how it doesn't uh, do a lot of tropes that most do. And I'm going to say there's some bullshit on that because Idris Elba does the cliche thing of becoming a good guy that saves the day. They even battle like a big monster in most movies or a big bad guy, if you will. Characters start to have their moral compass change as the movie goes along. Like there is a lot of foundational I, tropes from even the most basic Marvel movie that are in this. And I, I, I think this is like they are done in a better way. <laughs> like they are there, they are better than the usual. They they are better. I will give it that. But I feel yeah. like some people that are hyping this up is like, oh, this is up there with the Dark Knight or something like that. I'm like, let's <laughs> pump your brakes there a little bit, Chief. <laughs> I mean, the Dark I, I, maybe, but I I would I would I wouldn't know at this point. I've only watched it one time. 
I know. And there's just a lot of, like, people that were saying stuff like that. And I'm like, well, literally, Marvel has done some of this stuff before, and you guys have, like, killed them for it. But then, like, here, they've copied some of that same and stuff, and you're I, like, oh, no, it's different. And, yeah, well, some of it is different. They do still copy some of, like, the bare-bones plot points from even most superhero movies. Okay, but listen, like, for example, about the the final act of killing the fucking monster, CI monster, you know? I think that's built it up perfectly because uh, James Gunn has this thing that's called escalation. He knows how to escalate the action. So, you know, by the time the movie opens, um, we know um, this escalation. Uh, he establishes the threat of the movie. And then he he he. Then we we see like the other threats, the president, the general, and then it goes it goes to Starro, and it starts building it up little by little. You know, first we know it's um, Project Starfish. Then we see what it is, a star. Then we see what it does, and then we get glimpses of it. And after that, we see the sorrow that that they have to face at that moment the amount of people it has captured and where it's laying and after yeah. that they release him and they see a fucking kaiju like they say and like I think that way of constructing the final act is good yeah I even I would say that's kind of stuff that you've even seen in, like, uh, the Avengers build up Thanos, this big monster. Yeah, but throughout the movies. Yeah, and even in Infinity War and, and, well, I guess more Infinity War, they do a very good job of, like, here's who they're very clearly facing, and then it comes in the third act with a big battle. You know, I was thinking more of Doctor Strange. I would think of that, too, with Dormammu, in a way. Yeah. And that's (laughs) just kind of like... like I know most Marvel movies now like Black Widow are just kind of being like oh well we're gonna do subversion on like the character in general like Taskmaster or we're gonna make it just a run-of-the-mill generic evil bad guy or something like that which is kind of lame in some ways but I feel like they're like you and I have kind of talked about a little bit here there there have been other build-ups we've seen before in other Marvel movies even or even superhero movies in general like that uh, even probably TV shows that we watch, like The Boys did a very good job building up some of the uh, oh, villains yeah. in their shows. And yeah. it's like, it's something that we've seen in a lot of superhero media, which is why here it kind of feels like a little bit of overpraising, but at the same time, I do acknowledge that Gunn does a very good job here building up something like Starro. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of great. Your complaint? What was your complaint? Uh, the last one you want me to get into here a little bit? Uh, yeah, because uh, because maybe I can persuade you okay. otherwise. <laughs> so, um, I've covered the Harley Quinn subplot a little bit yeah. and how I'm not a big fan of the character. I've kind of covered how this copies some other tropes that have come from other superhero movies and stuff like that. Now, the last thing that I guess I'll kind of touch on here a little bit that maybe you can give me a little bit more insight into because maybe... I just didn't get it, or it was just kind of the dumbest thing that I kind of saw. But for the, the most titles? part, no, not the titles. Okay. I actually love that because that yeah. that feels like it comes straight out of a comic. I was going to say, "Fuck you, they're great." <laughs> yeah, I know because that, that that's what I love about James Gunn with this movie. He makes it feel like a comic book page, an is actual being comic book. It reminds yeah, me of Scott Pilgrim. 
Yeah, um, he does a lot of great things making it feel like a comic book, like something like you said, since Scott Pilgrim has even done. Like, but, at least in live action, you know, because um, we have had Spider-Verse in animation. Yeah, these movies, and I know that other superhero movies have done them, even the Avengers have done them, it's always these scenes where they have like one drink together in a bar and they just become instant best friends and the chemistry is built over that and it's just i don't know if i hate this trope or if it's just something that i'm not a big fan of in maybe most you're not, movies. i'm also not a big fan of it because sometimes it's just like a jump start for the character i know and that that's what bugs me a little bit is this I mean, movie even did that i was like oh I mean, are they all gonna I, become chummy because I, I like the fact that they didn't became best friends after that you know no i feel like the only ones that really do is like rat catcher starts to like them a lot more no, but so, rat catcher but... was really liking everybody i know, know but she a was lot, like that yeah uh, even Polka Dot Man kind of opens up a little bit more after uh, no, that, he dances with like. his mom. Look at that. Uh, that's what that's what I like. Like they, the characters open up, but they don't become actual friends until like later in the movie. Mm-hmm. And, no, they don't. Yeah. They don't become a team until until they unite to fight Starro. Actually, yeah. And this movie does a lot of great in it. I will say this is definitely one I'm going to rewatch a lot this year. Um, you haven't listened to the Dalton portion yet, but I've already. Basically said the Green Knight is my favorite movie so far this year. Nice. And then I would say how uh, I was talking about how like I don't know how this is gonna stack up, but right now this is probably like up in the top three so far. Yeah, Suicide this is Squad. my top ten. Year is not over yet because I know there's a lot yeah. more that's still coming out, but as of right now, it'd be like you know you got the Green Knight. Oh, shit, I, I we really gotta like... watch Paw Patrol, dude. You no, know, I gotta watch Paw Patrol. I've seen the Green Knight. I really like Nobody when it first came out. I really enjoyed talking about the Suicide Squad and the movie itself. And you know the rest of the year is still here to come. But honestly, I could I could see this one being in my top ten of the year. I think this yeah. is damn good from James Gunn. Um, but for the most part, yeah, the Suicide Squad is an absolute blast. And I know Charles, you were talking about how like oh I'm so sick of like. Uh, Marvel movies and stuff <laughs> like that. And I'm getting tired of like them just. Uh, I like because this one had it. a personality. That's what yeah. I like about this one. It has a personality true and true, and it knows what it wants to do. It it just you know, ah, there's something about this movie that I just really liked. Yeah, like, it does have more personality. Like than most. Uh, not as much as Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, but yeah, I there, like there, there, a There's better. a lot of of the, of this movie to love, and. And maybe it's because you know, um, 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 somebody said that that the Suicide Squad is a movie that that even though it it's like disappointing at the box office, sadly, you know. Well, the, there's, the a variant, there's a couple factors to get into. There's a couple factors. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're not gonna get into that. We're not yeah. the box office and all this. <laughs> yeah. Well, like people are saying, you know, even though it's failing at the box office, it's it's like amazing the fact that something like this that is 100% the vision of somebody gets to go to a theater and has like a, a over a hundred million dollar budget and it's a big blockbuster for a big studio franchise you know that's that's amazing that's like that somebody made this and they barely had any, any anything like like fiddle with and it's ironic coming from Warner Brothers and now in their backstory <laughs> yes yeah well I was like dude what I, I don't remember if I said this before but, but whatever the movie has that I don't like I can see why it's in this movie yeah um, that, that's that's my main point even though there are aspects of it that I don't like maybe the 
the pacing of it it's not that great or maybe there are one or two scenes or something you know mm-hmm. there's there's a reason behind it all and I and I like that I can see that and understand why it's there I can understand why they kill Captain Murang and that's why I'm not that mad I, I can I, I can was... un- that, that was probably sad. made me the most sad. I was like, oh, really? No, I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, I like that character. He's an asshole. I like him. Yeah, he is. But like all of that, you know, and maybe sometimes it, it it's overindulgent on itself, on its own style. Yeah. But I don't mind that because it's the means to an end. And the end is amazing. I, I love it. I don't know. It's... Yeah, it's uncompromised vision. I love when that happens with the movie. Yeah, even um, though even though sometimes you know that vision is not that great. <laughs> yeah, I know, and I will admit there there is going to be a lot of people that talk about like uh, how this is probably going to be the best superhero movie that comes out this year. And we don't know. We have not maybe. Seen the other, I mean, I mean we, we don't know. Seen... We we don't know if the other, if the other movies are going to come out this year. I know. There's four others still slated to come. And we out don't know this if year. they're coming out. <laughs> yeah, we don't know that at all, actually. Um, but that's the thing. The Suicide Squad is a very fun movie. I would recommend you see it. I don't really care where you see it. I know that the the variant is out right now, so yeah. we don't feel comfortable with theaters. Hey, it's on HBO Max. Uh, if could, you feel comfortable going to theaters, I'd recommend it. I saw this in IMAX for the second nice. time, and it looks ooh, gorgeous. Oh, um, fuck, dude. So yeah. nice. And so uh, this is a really good movie. I would recommend all of you guys check it out. I think I gave it an 8 out of 10. I'm going to keep it there in an 8 yeah, out of 10. Yeah, me too. Me too, yeah. 10. So me and Charles have the same score again. That's awesome. Nice. But yeah, so the Suicide Squad, that will wrap up this podcast. Uh, as it was as it comes to the future, I will say. Let's talk about that for a second. So you guys heard my future podcast. You heard about what's remaining for this year to talk about and stuff. Like I said, if there's a movie that comes out that you can convince me to talk about, reach out to me and maybe I'll consider doing a podcast on it. But to talk about the future slate for what's coming out after this. Me and Mick are doing a Bad Batch podcast. Uh, He will be my next co-host to come on and talk about the Bad Batch. Brian has agreed to come back and do Candyman. If it's still coming out in August here still, we'll have to see if movies start delaying again. Uh, Nobody has claimed No Time to Die. I don't know if anybody gives a shit about James Bond besides me anymore. I mean, Um, I I, I do like, but I don't know if I want to, if if I'm going to see that movie. That's fair. Um, I have other priorities that month of October. Yeah, and then there's going to be a ton more movies that are coming out in October. Like I said, you got Wes Anderson's new movie. You got Edgar Wright's new movie, Dune, which I know so many people want to talk about. Uh, Yeah, Halloween Kills. A lot of people want to talk about Dune, though. Um, Jackass has a new movie coming out, which I'm so happy I want to watch that movie already. I know. Um, And there's probably a ton more that I can't think of. But guys, uh, we are getting into the thick of it here with movies, and I kind of love it. So like I said... Next time you'll hear from me on the podcast is when me and Mick talk about The Bad Batch, and then probably when me and Brian talk about Candyman, if it still comes out on time. But for the most part, thank you for coming on, Charles. It's been fun to talk with you about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I, I love talking here, even though it's so late. <laughs> I know. We always record these super late or during the day. We can't pick a time, it feels like. Yeah. Even when there's like thunderstorms rolling in all around me and I can't do anything because it's mm-hmm. knocking out the power like it's going out of style. But yeah, that'll do it for Hayden's Entertainment Hour this episode. Thank you guys for listening to the Green Knight and the Suicide Squad episode. I will see you guys next time with the Bad Batch and Mick. Charles, do you have to say anything before we sign off? Um, 
I don't know. Watch this movie, I guess. If you haven't, and if you have, just don't be weird about it. That's it. Yeah, don't be weird about it. And I know some people are going to hate me because I said I didn't like Harley Quinn on this episode. Reach out to me in DMs at screen. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. <laughs> but anyways, thank you guys so much for listening to this edition of Hayden's Entertainment Hour. We shall see you next time.